Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Laura Robinson. And we're both PhD candidates at Duke University. Today's article is a section of a book called Onesimus, Our Brother. Uh, We're going to be reading chapter 7 from it, which is called Brother Saul, an Ambivalent Witness to Freedom. This is written by Alan Dwight Callahan. Onesimus, Our Brother, is a 2012 book, which you'll notice isn't 20 years old. This is a lot more recent of a work than we normally do on this show. And the reason why is because we wanted to do a show featuring Alan Dwight Callahan. He uh, is an independent scholar who had a very celebrated career at Harvard and Brown. His signature issues are Black Interpretation of the Bible and Philemon. But this article is kind of a bite-sized sample of the kind of work on reception history that Callahan has been doing for a long time, uh, particularly his signature book, The Talking Book. So we're going to do this shorter essay, this shorter, uh, more limited project, uh, just to give you guys a flavor of Callahan's work, what he does, and why he matters. So this article is a survey of how Black readers have read Paul, particularly in service of emancipation. He looks at a variety of reading strategies, particularly American black Christians have employed to deal with Paul. One of his initial observations is that it's remarkable, it's remarkable how few black Christians have actually decided to just reject Paul. We're going to look at a few, but with those notable exceptions, African American Christians have generally found a way to claim Paul as their own. And Callahan is going to look at the way they read these letters, which on their face, and we're going to discuss in a second, have some pretty anti-emancipatory content. So the, the the move for most black emancipatory readers of Paul has not been to write Paul off. It's been to appropriate him or to employ different kinds of reading strategies that, that highlight the emancipatory elements or makes Paul's work more uh, amenable to the emancipatory cause. Of course, today's show is about emancipatory readings of Paul, but unfortunately, emancipatory readings of Paul do not characterize a lot of Paul's reception history. And there's some obvious reasons why. The phrase that Callahan uses to describe Paul's role in the slavery debate is that Paul became, in the minds of slave and master alike, the patron saint of the master class. Paul had a number of texts in his corpus that seemed to be irredeemably in favor of a master-slave hierarchy relationship existing in society. So one of the obvious texts to go to here, and the text from which the book gets its title, is Philemon, Onesimus is the runaway slave whom Paul is returning to his owner Philemon in this letter. It's worth noting as a side here that Callahan doesn't do any of this work in this article, but Callahan actually has another book arguing that that's not the situation here. To get there, we would have to do a lot of history of scholarship, so we're going to leave that to the side for a second. But most readers, most scholars agree that what's happening in I am sending him back to you, I wanted to keep him with me, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent, So you can have him now no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. What's going on here is Paul returning a runaway slave and asking that the owner send him back to Paul as a gift or as a kind of service. And this, of course, was used in the antebellum South, that is the American South before the Civil War, as justification for fugitive slave laws, which were, of course, a set of horrific laws about how... Northerners had to return enslaved peoples to their enslavers in the South. 
Philemon has a very dark history in this respect. It has been seen as a letter where Paul legitimizes the practice of slavery, uh, where Paul legitimizes the capture and return of escaping enslaved people. So that's the anti-emancipatory reading of Philemon. The other relevant texts here are the household codes in Colossians and Ephesians. Colossians and Ephesians both uh, contain a series of instructions to members of a household that are reciprocal according to relationships. There are instructions to husbands and wives, parents and children, and then enslaved people and enslavers. The instructions to the slaves end with the following quote from Ephesians. It says, To obey your earthly masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill being slaves as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good someone does, that one will receive from the Lord whether slave or free. What we have here is an instruction to obey your enslaver, do what they say, be on whether they're watching or not, do your best, and you'll get some kind of reward for this. There's a section of Callahan's essay where he describes um, Howard Thurman remembers his grandmother uh, saying that this passage was preached constantly when she was enslaved, that there's the Sunday services they would have, white preachers would come in and preach on this passage and teach this, the enslaved people that it was God's will that they were enslaved and that if they were good and happy and submissive, that God would bless them for this work. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Thurman's grandmother as we go along, but this is fairly representative of how this passage was taught in the Antebellum of South. It is a endorsement of encouraging your slaves to be good and hardworking in exchange for some kind of reward, presumably in the afterlife. And to skip ahead a second to, or to an author we're going to talk about more, uh, Jupiter Hammond, the famous black poet, during the period of antebellum slavery, cited this passage in an address to his fellow African Americans in New York saying, slaves, obey your masters. So Callahan's point is that enslavers and enslaved people alike understood this passage, at least some of them, understood this passage as an endorsement of slavery. So those are the anti-emancipatory readings. What Callahan is doing in this essay is taking a look at the other side. What is the emancipatory project of reading Paul look like? And I want to be clear here that this is an essay that is primarily about reader response to Paul and about the history of interpretation of Paul. Callahan is not doing a historical critical reading of these passages and telling us why they are wrong from a historical critical perspective. And to be clear, that's not what we're going to be doing on today's show either. I don't think it is helpful to read these passages and find a reading strategy to make it seem as or Paul doesn't actually think slavery is right in spite of the evidence of these passages. I don't think this is helpful. Um, there's a lot of myths that kind of show up at this point when we start talking about Paul, the historical critical reading of Paul and slavery. You don't see this in academic circles as much anymore, thank God, but the unhelpful narrative that Roman slavery wasn't as bad as antebellum slavery, and therefore that's why Paul was okay with it, tends to show up in at the very least, Christian preaching. I would love to tell you that ancient Roman slavery wasn't evil like modern slavery was. I would love to be able to say that Paul was a modern egalitarian on gender issues, anti-slavery emancipator, but I'm not going to tell you that. 
I unfortunately don't think that's true. And I don't think Callahan is either. Um, we'll do another episode later on the nature of slavery in the Roman world. But even the people Callahan is going to be profiling here aren't doing historical critical readings that try to flip these statements on their head. They're instead employing hermeneutical strategies to argue for a liberating reading of the gospel, or, you know, we'll see as we go along. But we just wanted to do a disclaimer about the kind of episode this is going to be. This yeah. is We're going to be surveying the way people have read Paul historically, not giving you an argument about how you should or should not read Paul. As far as Paul himself goes, when it comes to Paul, we have what he, we have what we have. There is some significant tension, I would argue, between different Pauline letters and different passages in Paul. I, I want to be clear when I'm talking about this, that Paul doesn't map onto the categories we're often asking him to comment on. Uh, I don't think Paul is an abolitionist, and I don't think he is enthusiastically preaching the ownership of slaves to his communities. I don't think Paul is a feminist, and I don't think he sounds like your average complementarian pastor at an evangelical church. I just don't think Paul maps onto any of these views. There's a fair amount of tension, there's a fair amount of contradiction in the Pauline letters, and our task is how do we deal with this, how do we read this, and specifically today, how have other people read this? But when it comes to Paul, we have what we have. We do have these passages that seem to be okay with subjugation of women or the, uh, with the continued practice of slavery. We're not trying to read around these and neither is Callahan. Callahan's question is how did African American readers read these passages in Paul and just read Paul in general, not even just these passages, to get the emancipatory readings of scripture, of their scriptures. So one thing that is very surprising when we look at Paul in his writings on slavery is that, as Callahan notes, wholesale rejection of Paul in Paul's corpus, front to back, is surprisingly rare among Black Christian interpreters. Uh, we talked earlier about Howard Thurman's grandmother, who remembered the household codes being preached at her. Thurman says that when he was a little boy, she would only let him read 1 Corinthians 13 to her from the Pauline corpus because she had said that as a child, that she would never read Paul again. She would never read Paul again because of the way he was preached in this very oppressive way to her. Uh, but that's clearly not what happened, because she let her grandson read 1 Corinthians 13 to her. So there, there is a little bit of openness to Paul here. Uh, she doesn't completely reject him. She just rejects the parts that were harmful to her. Another example of this is James Baldwin, who is an African-American author, who um, famously said the Bible had been written by white men. This was in contrast for him in contrast to Jesus, who is this Middle Eastern non-white figure whose message, according to Baldwin, had been appropriated by the quote-unquote white Paul and made into another oppressive system. Similarly, Albert Clage argued for excising Paul, getting rid of Paul, and focusing on the black messiah, focusing on Jesus, this quote, sun-baked Hebrew. That's a line, of course, from him. So, these are just a few examples of the comparatively rare phenomenon of black theologians deciding to throw out Paul entirely. If this is not the favorite method for how black readers dealt with Paul, then uh, what other options were there? One option that shows up in some of the texts that Callahan pulls is quietism. One example of this is Jupiter Hammond, who we've already introduced, a black poet who 
apparently uh, approvingly preached Ephesians 6, 5 to 7, preaching that slaves obey your masters. And Hammond apparently saw this as something of a savvy move, that this was a, uh, this was a means for protecting black lives, if they were in fact uh, obedient to their enslavers. Hammond did offer a condition to these instructions. Uh, it, the exception Hammond made was, unless we are bid to do that which we know to be sin. So don't obey your enslaver if he or she is telling you to commit a sin. Otherwise, this is not a bad strategy. This is a good way to stay alive. This is a good way to avoid punishment. We're going to move past these pretty quickly to get to the more interesting ones, yeah. but another example is Bishop Daniel Alexander Payne, who preached to a newly emancipated black population in the American South and used particularly the pastoral Paul, the epistles, pastoral epistles to preach, again, quietism and civic obedience that by serving the state, they would become respected and be able to live peaceful lives. All right. Next, we get Howard Thurman, who Callahan is going to characterize as reading canonically, um, particularly reading these passages on slavery in Paul in light of what Acts tells us about Paul's relationship to the state. So, according to Callahan, Thurman psychologized Paul. He saw that Paul's Roman citizenship was useful to him in preaching the gospel, and so, according to Thurman, saw his interests aligned with the interests of the state. And so, in Ephesians and Colossians, he seems to teach or endorse slavery. These are places where Paul is sort of sliding back from the gospel, as expressed in Galatians 3, there's neither slave nor free, and sort of slipping into things that are psychologically or pragmatically convenient for him. Yeah. Another strategy that Callahan foregrounds is a tendency to see Paul not just as the voice behind the letters, but as the persecuted figure in Acts. Throughout most of the Acts narrative, Paul is being heroic and traveling around. He's facing a lot of opposition. He's being beaten. He's, he's being persecuted. What Callahan argues is that framing Paul as sort of a man of sorrows, a person who suffered a lot in this sort of underdog figure, was itself fairly liberating for black readers of Paul. It, it divorces Paul from being this voice from on high in this, in this authority figure who tells people to obey their enslavers and makes him more relatable and makes him more uh, on the side of the oppressed. Uh, you don't really get that as much if you're reading Paul of the letter, the, the voice behind the letters is Paul, but more if you're looking at Acts. Callahan also brings into this article Paul as an oppressor of women and the passages we've discussed before in our Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza episode where Paul or the Pauline letters says things about, about women being silent and subordinate. And he shows how particularly black women used the Gospels to argue against this way of reading Paul. They pointed to 1 Corinthians 15 as saying the resurrection was the message on which Christianity was founded and argued that in the Gospels, we see women as the first preachers, proclaimers of the resurrection. Um, so this is one way of combining the Gospels and Paul together to make a message of liberation for women. Callahan points out that this interestingly reads against the grain of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul either erases or fails to mention the role of women as witnesses of the resurrection. He gives this list of resurrection witnesses, and the women are left off of it. But 
this is neither here nor there for Jerina Lee, Mary McLeod Bethune, and Mary Cook, these black female preachers who are using the Gospels to find a liberatory reading of Paul. Another option that Callahan explores is the practice of reading Paul selectively, taking parts of Paul and reading Paul in tension with Paul. Uh, One example of this is a 1774 petition that Callahan cites, where a group of enslaved men petitioned the Massachusetts House of Representatives for their freedom by using the household codes, interestingly enough. The statement of their petition was that they were not able to follow the commands of the household codes concerning their role as husbands and fathers if they were also enslaved. This responsibility to their family was seriously mitigated if they had this overarching responsibility to their enslavers, right? That all these commands could not exist at the same time, and how can we possibly follow Paul if we are being expected to do this? Another one of the black preachers who who Callahan talks about is Julia A.J. Foote, who justified her right to preach by, by looking at Paul's relationship to women and arguing that Paul clearly did work with female preachers and approve of them, even if we had these passages in Paul that suggest that he didn't care for female teaching. She noted the fact that Paul mentions these fellow workers who are all women, uh, Priscilla, Phoebe, uh, Julia, Eutychus, and Syntyche, And she said of this that when Paul said, help those women who labor with me in the gospel, he certainly meant they did more than to pour tea. Uh, Her point is that Paul is working with these women very closely. They have to have some kind of authoritative teaching position. Therefore, so can Julia. She also foregrounded Galatians 3.28, the teaching that there is neither male nor female in Christ. These strategies are taking these tensions that clearly exist in Paul's letters, that Paul kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth about the equality of men and women and the standing of female teachers, and they really exploited these tensions. They really drew attention to the to the fact that there's more than one voice and more than one perspective in Paul, skewing the reading more towards equality than towards inequality. And finally, another strategy that he talks about is sort of omitting the deutero and pastoral Pauline letters. So Ephesians and Colossians were probably not written by Paul, according to most scholars and pastoral epistles, definitely weren't. Uh, So you get rid of the household codes and the quietism of the pastoral letters. And Cain Felder draws a lot of attention to Galatians 3, wherein Paul says there is neither slave nor free. That's a pretty emancipatory Paul. Amos Jones says you were left with a Paul who preaches freedom in the gospel. And that message, whatever Paul may have said elsewhere, that message, according to Amos Jones, would undermine the imperial structures of Rome. So these readers of the Bible, according to Callahan, have bought themselves an emancipatory Paul at the expense of disposing with the canonical Paul. And he's not making a value judgment on that. That, of course, leaves us with 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, you know, people aren't supposed to change their status because the end of the world's about to come. But Thomas points out that this is a place where Paul actually allows an exception. If you're able to get free, get free. And that seems to reveal Paul's interest in that. And then, of course, there's Philemon, but that's a whole other conversation. The interesting thing to note, as Callahan concludes, he's actually a little critical of a tendency in modern Black theology to highlight the seven-letter canon Paul in disregard Acts and the Deuteropauline and maybe the subpauline in Colossians and Ephesians. As Callahan notes, the history of reading Paul in an emancipatory way 
actually can gain a lot from Axe and actually can incorporate some really creative and really interesting rating of Colossians and Ephesians. The, the quote he has about the tendency to focus on the seven-letter, supposedly more liberative Paul is that many of the emancipatory revisionist readings of Paul are purchased at the cost of dissociating the, quote, authentic apostle from the canonical accretions of the Lucan narrative on the one hand and the Deuteropauline and pastoral epistles on the other, cropping Paul's portrait with the tools of New Testament higher criticism. And as Callahan's seen, it's not really that that's not necessary, it's that, that does, that's not even necessarily helpful. There are these other really creative and really interesting engagements with even the household codes or other sections of Paul. And these are the ones that Callahan wants to draw attention to, that there is a tremendously rich history of Black Christians reading the Pauline letters and finding emancipatory meetings in there. And you don't have to just cut it down to 1 Corinthians to get there. So that's not the last word from us on the subject, but Callahan is a really important voice, particularly on the reception of Paul, and particularly on the reception of Paul by black theologians. So we wanted to give you a taste of his scholarship in a really helpful sort of flyover article that lays out different reading strategies for dealing with the quote, anti-emancipatory, end quote, ways of reading Paul. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Ian.